Hello, I'm Oren McMullen, and you're listening to Mondo Christ Almighty, a podcast devoted to the frequently wild and weird and wonderful world of cinematic, or primarily cinematic, representations of Jesus Christ. This week, we are focusing not on any portrayal of Jesus Christ himself, but exploring instead how a particular, and in this case, particularly notorious tenet of evangelical Christian doctrine found expression in a couple of low-budget, high-stakes, independent pictures appearing one on top of the other in the early 1970s. Ron Ormond's rabidly anti-communist Jeremiah, a footman tire you what will horses do, produced in 1971, and the following years, A Thief in the Night, the first and most famous of a series of cheaply produced but occasionally quite ingeniously realised rapture thrillers directed by Donald W. Thompson throughout the 1970s and early 1980s. Initially, I had intended for this episode to arrive a wee bit further down the line, but to be honest, it feels like now is as good a time to talk about these films as there's ever going to be. As I'm recording this, the COVID-19 pandemic is busy making absolute mincemeat of the everyday, and has been for some time. As a consequence, apocalyptic language is once again very much in vogue, and for many people, the heat of God's wrath is very much in the air, and the howling of the end of days can be heard in every wind that rises. So the question facing us today is, this event affecting the whole earth, is it judgment from God? That's the question. Is this whole thing the judgment of God? And the answer is yes. And I'll explain why I say that. The only way judgment can come to a nation or to the world is if the owner, God, lifts his hand and lets it come. Just ask Job. Around about the close of 2017, US President Donald Trump, acting partly on the advice of Roy Moore, the staunchly evangelical two-time Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama, 
made the typically sober and level-headed decision to relocate the US Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, a city which Trump rushed to declare the eternal capital of the Jewish people. Now this was a turn of events that had profound implications for huge swathes of apocalyptically minded American evangelicals, given the status afforded Jerusalem in the kinds of end times narratives with which apocalyptically minded American evangelicals are preoccupied to an overwhelming degree. In the wake of Trump's decision, the hashtag rapture anxiety began trending across social media, inspired by Me Too and by the various satellite movements dealing specifically with goings-on within fundamentalist Christian communities, Rapture Anxiety detailed the immeasurable fear and panic and trauma bestowed upon those growing up with the weight of premillennial dispensationalist dogma bearing down upon them. It made extremely visible the mechanics of an apparatus designed to keep believers, and especially young believers, in a perpetual state of alarm, a sort of hypertension born of a belief that the rapture, the hauling up to heaven in the blink of an eye of all of the righteous and faithful, was imminent. The fear was that one might either be left behind to deal with the turmoil set to grip the earth in the wake of these events, the tribulation in evangelical parlance, or that they might ascend to the heavens but without any of their loved ones, without family, without friends, without anyone, because those people didn't believe the right things or didn't believe the right things enough. All across Twitter, stories abounded of children afraid to fall asleep lest they wake up to empty houses, of extreme anxiety attacks induced by a parent's failure to arrive at the school gates at the usual time, or to return home from work at the usual hour. Some people would talk about the terrible fates that they had been led to believe awaited those who remained on earth. Fates ranging from persecution by anti-Christian representatives of a sinister one-world government headed by the Antichrist himself, to attacks from swarms of bees that would be sent to sting out the eyes of those who had failed to give themselves to Jesus in time. In a fantastic article uh, published on Killing the Buddha in May 2020, S. Brent's plates articulated the profound rapture anxiety that terrorized his formative years as follows. Quote, As a child for whom the apocalypse was real, there were but two options for my future, left behind or suffering torture and possibly martyrdom. This all sort of depended on whether one believed Jesus was coming first followed by a period of tribulation, or whether Jesus would come after that time of testing and mayhem. Both mythologies, dressed up as doctrines, had me by the throat." Unquote. Now, I can't say I grew up in anything like such an environment. Uh, I mean, my parents were religious in a very broad sense. 
we lived in Northern Ireland, after all, but I never really heard very much talk about the rapture as such. Uh, however, religion did play a fairly big part in my schooling, and I was very keenly aware that there would come a time, and a time that was maybe not all that far removed from the here and now, when the world would end, and that the biblical book of Revelation told you all you had to know about the kinds of things that were due to happen. The earth and all that was in it would be trampled by beasts beyond measure, and the Lord would appear on a chariot of fire that would tear the spheres asunder. This is no joke. This is not a fairy tale. It will happen just as sure as you and I are here right now. And friend, if you haven't given your life to Christ, do it. And do it now, because the rapture will come and Christ will return. The whole concept of the rapture, with all of its attendant eschatological apocalyptic rhetoric, largely derives from the wild fancies of the 19th century Anglo-Irish biblical scholar John Nelson Darby, a key member of the Plymouth Brethren and the man credited with formulating the dispensational premillennial theology which went on to so influence American fundamentalists and which continues to exert such a terrifying hold over the imaginations of Christians to this day, not only in America but around the world. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, uh, you may be wondering, well, what is premillennial dispensationalism? What are we even gabbling on about? Essentially, it's a mode of biblical interpretation that reads scripture with one eye, whilst the other is trained unblinkingly on events occurring outside of the Bible in the chaos of the world round about. For premillennial dispensationalists, the entirety of human history is divided into a series of clearly defined eras, or dispensations. So, for example, the period of time between the creation and the fall is one dispensation, the period stretching from the establishment of the Mosaic Law until the crucifixion of Christ is another. For those who subscribe to this doctrine, we're currently living in the period of grace, which is due to come to an end at any moment. This is a period stretching from the death and resurrection of Christ to the rapture and subsequent tribulation. The final dispensation is known as the period of the millennial kingdom. So this is when Christ returns to earth, and specifically to Jerusalem, to begin a thousand-year reign that concludes with God's final judgment. This is what those who have bought into premillennial dispensationalism believe, and it's not far removed from what fundamentalist factions in other major religions believe. Islam especially puts a lot of emphasis on Christ's eventual return to Jerusalem at which point he will lead the armies of Allah in a great war against the Antichrist, an Antichrist that Jesus himself will eventually slay. In recent decades, Darby's ideas have found probably their best known expression in Left Behind, 
a series of 16 novels written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, in which Darby's paranoid end times fantasies, derived from a, let's say, rather idiosyncratic reading of the Book of Revelation, the Gospel of Mark, and the Old Testament Book of Isaiah, among other things, play out as a battle between a network of coverts and dissidents and the forces of the Antichrist, here envisioned as in Darby's formulation as the head of a diabolical one-world government. As this episode will demonstrate, these novels were not without precedent. Far from it. Uh, rapture fiction, or evangelical prophecy fiction, as it's sometimes known, has been an extremely popular and commercially viable genre since at least 1905, when John Birkbeck Burroughs published the seminal Titan Son of Saturn, a volume proposing to detail events surrounding the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist, peppered with scraps of scripture plucked out of context and utilised as a sort of gum to hold the book's more extravagant ideas in place. Sidney Watson's trilogy of rapture novels, inaugurated by the publication of In the Twinkling of an Eye in 1911, appeared soon after, and many more appeared after that, the popularity of the genre often peaking at times of particular geopolitical tension. And that's actually one of the more interesting things about rapture fiction, and indeed about premillennial dispensationalism in general, as Matthew Guest has noted, is that whilst many religious movements and sects and denominations tend to look past the world about them, seeing events occurring on this plane as trivialities compared to events due to unfold in the world beyond, rapture-minded evangelicals are obsessed with events occurring on the global stage right here in the present, picking over every development, warping and adapting whatever's going on as they continue to mould and augment their beliefs. Left Behind initially went on to spawn a series of fairly low-budget film adaptations starring child actor-turned-evangelical propaganda piece Kirk Cameron, and then later a slightly bigger-budgeted reboot starring Nicolas Cage. It also provided the inspiration for a controversial video game, which is itself mentioned a lot by those contributing to the rapture anxiety discussion online. But another property, itself a major inspiration on Left Behind, is also name-checked fairly frequently. That would be A Thief in the Night, a widely seen but rather seldom discussed outside of evangelical circles rapture thriller that generated three sequels and a host of imitators. Christ will give you the strength and the encouragement that you need to overcome all your difficulties if you'll let him. Through Christ you have available to you all the power of heaven to overcome Satan. Isn't that neat? 
A Thief in the Night appeared two years after the publication in 1970 of Hal Lindsay and Carl C. Carson's The Late Great Planet Earth, an enormously successful and influential book which announced in no uncertain terms that the 1970s would prove to be the era of the Antichrist. And this is a claim that they backed up with recourse to various passages from the Bible, as usual, but also a mountain of decidedly spurious evidence that really just boiled down to a load of racist, xenophobic doom-mongering and anti-European paranoia. But what all of this meant, for the many people convinced by Lindsay and Carson, was that Christ was very much in the post. Christ was on his way. Now, they didn't say exactly when he was going to appear, but most readers interpreted what they did say as an indication that the second coming would happen at some point in the 1980s. The late great planet Earth was a cultural sensation. Uh, it sold millions upon millions of copies. It spawned television specials. Uh, in 1979, a feature film was released narrated by Orson Welles. According to some accounts, uh, it also proved instrumental in Bob Dylan's conversion to fundamentalist Christianity in the late 1970s. So if you're a fan of Slow Train Coming, or Saved, or Shot of Love, or anything else that Bob got up to during that time, you have Hal Lindsey and Carl C. Carson to thank. The late great planet Earth, featuring Orson Welles. The incredible best-selling book by Hal Lindsey is now a motion picture that dares to explore the terrifying meanings of the ancient prophecies. Dares to face the chain of events predicting the end of our planet. I'm speaking to you today from the last battlefield on planet Earth. Let all the men of the war draw near. Let them come up. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. When the book of Revelation warned that 200 million men would decide the fate of our planet, is it only coincidence that Red China today has an army exactly that size? Prophecies speak of the coming of an antichrist. Is he among us already? So, in the midst of all of this, A Thief in the Night appears in 1972 and is immediately pounced upon by evangelicals. Uh, the film became a perennial fixture at youth retreats and Bible clubs and things like this. It was regularly shown in churches, it was regularly shown in schools. And it's easy enough to see why it was such a hit, despite its numerous shortcomings. Uh, we're talking a horror-inflected evangelical propaganda picture with a cast of fairly likeable youngsters, saturated with B-movie trappings and boasting a proper, bona fide final girl well before the final girl was a thing. Remember, this was two years before Black Christmas, two years before the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a full six years before Halloween. Because it completely bypassed mainstream distribution channels, it's difficult to ascertain exactly how many people actually saw the thing. But estimates begin at around 30-40 million people, and there are plenty who would argue that those estimates 
are very conservative estimates indeed. Now remember, Jenny, God always answers prayer. He has. He already has. I feel it. I feel him. I feel like if I had wings, I could fly. But you don't need wings now, Jenny. I should say, I think, uh, A Thief in the Night is a film that I do find quite difficult to talk about. Although, obviously, I'm going to try, because this wouldn't be much of an episode otherwise. On the one hand, there is something undeniably very endearing and naive and DIY and charmingly sort of kitsch about it all. And this is partly why it proves so popular among practitioners and proponents of so-called churchwave, a kind of niche offshoot of vaporwave, which, if you don't know, is a sort of ambient musical take on the kinds of things that video mixtape compilers were getting up to in the 1980s and 1990s, repurposing the detritus of post-modernity, uh, so McDonald's training videos and other industrial films, educational materials, advertisements, neglected computer games, public service announcements, cutting up and mangling and weaving together all of these constituent parts in the course of an interrogation or sometimes simply a nostalgic evocation of the cultures and the eras that produced those materials. Churchwave does much the same thing, albeit within a largely Christian context. Uh, artists digging into childhoods and early adolescences spent largely in church, retrieving snatches of materials encountered many years prior. Again, videos, films, records, games, and manipulating those things in such a way as to allow for the creator and the audience alike to brush against the past, but also to brush against the futures latent in many of the sampled or plundered components. Futures that were promised, but which never materialized. But, as I was saying, uh, there are a lot of things that I really enjoy and even admire about A Thief in the Night. I do think it is extremely peculiar in a really compelling way. I think it does have some really effective ideas and that it realizes at least some of them with undeniable ingenuity. Uh, it often employs a very striking visual economy that lends a real eeriness to some of its more notable movements. At the same time, though, we're essentially talking about a film that was utilized as a weapon by right-wing Christian fundamentalists. And that weapon was directed primarily against children and young teenagers. As someone remarked on Twitter, in the midst of the rapture anxiety conversation, entire generations of kids who grew up in churches watching A Thief in the Night and reading the Left Behind series now have psychological issues. Anxiety, depression, PTSD, religious scrupulosity, and more. I don't think there can be any doubt that that is true. But I also think that the film itself is strange and singular enough to warrant a discussion that approaches it purely as a piece of work in itself. 
which is what I am going to attempt to do. What instantly won me over uh, the first time I saw A Thief in the Night was the opening credits sequence, uh, which showcases a musical performance by an act named the Fish Market Combo, a group of shy, awkward, vaguely countercultural, vaguely Jesus freaky sorta of youngsters, so self conscious that they are hardly fit to look up from the floor, let alone turn their eyes to the skies in awe and wonder or anything else. But there they are. Uh, and against a black backdrop, as the camera sweeps around and about them, they set about delivering that adorably ramshackle and amateurish performance that you heard at the outset of this episode. A cover of the astonishingly prolific Christian rock pioneer Laurie Norman's wistfully cataclysmic I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Here, reconfigured as four minutes of oral hangdogging and hand-wringing and hardly harmonizing, evocative of nothing so much as a sort of somnolent, siroxat-sozzled, slowcore ABBA or something like this. Now the film doesn't open with that performance, what it opens with is a black screen over which can be heard the sound of a ticking clock, and upon which is soon stamped the words of Jesus Christ himself, as documented in Mark 13, 37, albeit the rather blunt and artless Mark 1337 of the rather blunt and artless Living Bible. What it says is this, keep a sharp lookout, for you do not know when I will come, at evening, at midnight, early dawn, or late daybreak. Don't let me find you sleeping. We are then privy to a scene that could have been lifted directly from a George A. Romero picture, in which a woman awakes to an empty house and to a radio news broadcast that proceeds as follows. Reports keep coming in from all over the globe, confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world, just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. A few eyewitness accounts of these disappearances have not been clear, but one thing is certainly sure. Millions who were living on this earth last night are not here this morning. The woman is Patty Myers, played by Patty Dunning, who at the time, she insists, just approached the role like she would have done any other. Uh, the religious stuff didn't really mean very much to her. But interestingly, in the years to come, she came to believe that the things that the film was saying were true, and ended up devoting herself to Jesus as a result. 
Uh, it quickly becomes apparent that Patty Myers, like us, has been left behind. And the remainder of the film is composed of both flashback sequences imbued with the sense of things tumbling inexorably towards disaster, flashbacks throughout which hindsight wails like a banshee, and then these other scenes depicting the dire state of the world that Patty is left to wander in the wake of the rapture and the establishment of the one world government and all of the terrible things that come with it. It's interesting because whilst it's essentially constructed like a disaster movie, it is a spiritual disaster first and foremost that the film is dealing with. A spiritual disaster which is then expressed as a series of external catastrophes. Uh, there's a certain degree of fun to be had in comparing how a thief in the night treats Patty and treats Patty's soul and how, say, Roland Emmerich treats the whole of the earth in Independence Day or the day after tomorrow or whatever. Uh, Emmerich's disaster films are almost always at their best throughout the first 15 or 20 minutes when we are just sort of uh, catching glimpses and getting the odd indication that something is really off and that something really bad is gonna happen. For much of the first act of Independence Day, for example, uh, it just feels like the world's got a bit of a flu coming on. Uh, and the first act of A Thief in the Night feels a lot like that too. It's just that in this case, the world denotes Patty's heart and soul and beliefs and behaviours. The flashback scenes often revolve around Patty's interaction with a particular group of friends, uh, a bunch of college kids, some of whom we'll recognise as members of the fish market combo. The film very quickly establishes this schism that exists between the group, consisting almost entirely of youngsters who have accepted Christ and have been born again, or are about to be, and who fully believe that the end of days is upon us, and Patty, who, whilst paying lip service to a sort of vaguely Christian belief system, is really far too enamoured of the world and far too easily distracted by mutton-chopped, mustachioed men in motorboats to give herself entirely to Jesus in the way that the majority of her friends have done. A further schism exists between these youngsters and a well-meaning but, in the eyes of the film, catastrophically wrong-headed preacher played by producer Russell Doughton, whose biggest hit prior to A Thief in the Night was 1958's The Blob, with which A Thief in the Night has a fair bit in common. Doughton's preacher is one who doesn't necessarily take everything in the Bible at face value, and who insists that it's still quite possible to be a Christian without necessarily subscribing to a literal reading of scripture. To insist that the Bible is anything more than the poetic expression of those greater principles by which man lives with man is to box oneself in with a wealth of opinion and counter-opinion which really doesn't matter because it really doesn't affect the way we are. What matters, my friends, is what we can know about man's relation to man. Create the universe in six days if you like, but don't force me to accept that myth as fact. 
This is juxtaposed with the message delivered by another preacher, a pastor whose words chime far more harmoniously with the beliefs of the fish market combo and the rest, and who informs his congregation with absolute certainty that the Bible is not a mere collection of parables and allegories and metaphors and distorted accounts of historical events, but is in fact a text that screams of impending calamity, and woe betide the one who hears and does not take heed. You will recall that last week we talked about some of the specific prophecies that had to do with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning, I want to talk to you about some of the signs of the end times, and one in particular, namely, the sign of the Antichrist. When the time is right, then the Bible tells us that a very great and strong and powerful leader will appear. Now, who will that leader be? Do we have any indication in the scriptures as to who this person will be? Yes, the Bible has an answer for that. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John these words, Indeed, many rightly will call him the Antichrist. The Bible further teaches that this individual will be instrumental in bringing about a season of peace in the world. Although his ultimate end will be a revenge against God, he will be a very evil person. Now, some think that if Christ were to come back in 30 years, that this individual could be living at this particular moment. And actually, if Christ comes back before 30 years, then it's altogether possible that this man is active in government even this very day. Well, from our studies of the past few weeks, we can conclude that we're living now in the end times. The days in which we live are seeing many prophecies being fulfilled that we have never seen fulfilled before. And surely this serves to remind all of us that the time is short at best. And if we would be followers of Jesus Christ, we must join his band now. There are a number of ostensibly suspenseful scenes scattered throughout A Thief in the Night. Uh, some of them, like the one involving an Indian cobra and Patty's soon-to-be-saved future husband, are perhaps somewhat less palpitation-inducing than Thompson may have intended. Others, like the interminable chase sequence that takes up much of the screen time post-rapture, are more likely to inspire boredom and irritation than unwavering devotion to Christ. But what is extremely effective, uh, I think, anyway, is the depiction of the rapture itself which makes a huge virtue of the film's limited resources. Basically, this sequence revolves around a very simple play of now you see them, now you don't. We get an assortment of shots depicting an assortment of people performing various mundane sorts of tasks in various mundane sorts of settings, the images punctuated by shots of the sky. So we see a woman preparing a cake mix in her kitchen, for example, or a man retrieving a lawnmower from his garage, or someone arranging letters on a church marquee. The film will present us with image A, incorporating the sight of a human being, then it will cut to image B, most often a shot of the clouds. When we return to image A, Everything is more or less as was 
within the mise-en-scene, except for the fact that there is no longer any human presence. The message on the marquee, which was due to read the end is near, has been abandoned before the near could be completed. The lawnmower trundles on across the lawn, but there's no longer anyone behind it. The cake mix sits unbeaten on the counter, and the announcer on the radio sitting beside it is talking about jet planes, and he's saying that all of a sudden they are falling from the sky. That's it. It is not my favourite depiction of the rapture, uh, Michael Tolkien's utterly brilliant The Rapture from 1991 has the edge over absolutely anything else ever made as far as that goes, but it is pretty high up the list. There's another really interesting and really very telling scene that appears slightly earlier and that we can probably say is one of the most important sequences in the whole film. What happens is that a very young girl returns home to an empty house. There's a saucepan boiling away on the stove, but there's nobody near it. She shouts for her mum, but there's no answer, for her mum is not there. We remain with the girl, uh, watching as she looks about the house and as she becomes increasingly anxious and increasingly distressed and then eventually as she just starts screaming and screaming. Screaming and screaming from a variety of angles over and over and over. For she believes that it has happened. The rapture has taken place and her mum has been yanked up out of this world and hauled away to God knows what world else. But, hold your horses. Hull your wished, as they say in Ulster Scots. For a few moments later, here she is. Here's mum after all. She just nipped out for some groceries, uh, leaving a pan boiling away unsupervised all the while. But the wee lass is so shaken by this experience that she decides to offer her soul to Jesus there and then. For a time will come when she will return home and the house will be empty and the pan will be boiling away and her mum will not come back and she will be left to wander those rooms alone forever. The scene provides a neat sort of summation of what the film as a whole is obviously attempting to do, which is to shake you up so badly that by the time it's over, you will be absolutely desperate to give yourself to Christ. And just as importantly, you'll be desperate for everyone you know and everyone you love to fall to their knees and beg for the same. Right now. Not tonight. Not tomorrow. No, it's also one of several junctures at which the film in a very sort of self-reflexive but also extremely calculated sort of way engages with the mechanics of that rapture anxiety we were talking about earlier. In another scene, the pastor we heard from a wee while ago uh, talking about how he fully believed that the rapture was imminent and that the Antichrist was more than likely walking among us even now, he talks about how many of his Christian friends have reported, for example, waking in otherwise empty beds and believing in that moment that the rapture has occurred. 
their partners have been whistled away in the night, leaving them to face the tribulation alone. But more significant than that, again, are the final moments of the picture itself. And this is quite a spoiler, so if you haven't seen the film yet and you wish to do so without knowing how it ends, you might want to go and do that before listening any further. Basically, after a pretty claustrophobic depiction of the net tightening around Patty to such an extent that any attempt to escape the clutches of the Antichrist is rendered absolutely futile and she is left with no choice but to throw herself off a bridge, A Thief in the Night concludes by revealing that everything we have seen and all of the events that we have watched unfold and everything that Patty has experienced has all been going on in her head as she has slept. The old, ah, oh, it was all a dream, cop out. But here, as in a fair few other films that employ the same device, it is not a cop-out. It is a particularly vicious narrative sting that retroactively renders the whole endeavour extraordinarily sadistic. For having now woken from that extremely distressing and extremely vivid nightmare, you would perhaps think that the film might allow Patty a sort of Scrooge moment, a chance to reflect and to properly emerge in herself and perhaps rise from her bed with a newfound determination to ensure that none of the things that were flung at her in her slumber will erupt about her in the waking world of real and measurable and perceivable phenomena. We might expect to see Patty racing like the hammers to that pastor or to the various members of the fish market combo, charged now with an urge to fall at the feet of the Lord, for she has seen what is due to happen, and she desperately wants to escape the fate that her nightmare laid out before her. But the film does not do that. What it does is it allows Patty to wake, realise she's been dreaming, wipe the sweat from her brow, just in time to hear that same radio news report that we heard at the very beginning of the film. She runs to the bathroom where her husband's electric razor is busy buzzing away in the sink with no husband anywhere near. And she returns distraught to the bedroom and collapses to her knees as everything that her dream predicted readies itself around her. Christian's pictures is described somewhat in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 24 and verses 36 and on. Jesus Christ is reported to be the speaker, and he says, and I quote, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, uh, this is just in from Central News Agency. The UN has established a special emergency committee and will be making an unprecedented worldwide radio and telecast at noon today. And the purpose of this broadcast will be to assess the worldwide situation and establish methods and procedures in handling possible problems and danger facing the world as we know it today. 
As I said earlier, uh, A Thief in the Night went on to spawn three sequels, all of which have their moments, although I don't think any of them are as interesting as A Thief in the Night itself. But I now want to leave that particular series behind, if you'll pardon the pun. It's time to hike up our trousers and reach for the wellies, for we are about to wade even further into the weird old waters of Christploitation and evangelical prophecy horror in the company of Ron Ormond's If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Produced the previous year and distributed via much the same channels, Ormond's film has a lot in common with A Thief in the Night. But there are also many, many ways in which it is very different indeed. If Donald W. Thompson's film is distinguished in part by the manner in which it renders absence as spectacle, Ormond's film can be said to be the complete opposite. In If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do?, described by Andrew Leivold as a biblical duck and cover training film, everything that can be made visible is made visible, in the most garish and lurid and, for many, I would wager, willfully offensive fashion imaginable. We interrupt this program to bring you news bulletins from Washington, D.C., all of the wires have sent us the account. The president of the United States has been killed in the White House, along with the Secretary of State and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Other bulletins coming from around the country say that the governors of several states have been killed. The governor of California, of Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and of New York. There are other bulletins that tell us that people are being herded in the streets of the large cities and machine gunned down like cattle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the communist takeover of the United States. This is the end of democracy, as you and I know it. If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? is based on a book by Estes Perkle, a Baptist minister from New Albany, Mississippi. Perkle is first and foremost a revivalist. Revival is what his preaching aims towards. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept, uh, what we are talking about when we talk about revival in this context is a period of time characterized by an enormous eruption of religious sentiment usually following stretches of perceived moral decay and or times when it is believed God has made his anger known in the form of natural disasters or mass bloodshed or pandemics or whatever. At these times, believers are called en masse to spiritual renewal and non-believers are called en masse to faith. It is, as Tom Aitken explains in a piece on one of cinema's most notorious and iconic revivalists, Night of the Hunters' Harry Powell, an almost entirely Protestant phenomenon, and again, as Aitken says, largely a North American one at that. 
Historically, when revival has been afoot, entire congregations, entire townships have exploded with the Holy Spirit. Sermons or strings of sermons have gone on for hours on end. Worshippers have found themselves overwhelmed with the urge to announce their devotion to the Lord in whatever form of expression should take hold in the moment. They might jump to their feet or fall to the floor. They might wail in tongues of electric delirium. The preaching of Estes Perkle, coloured by a right old wallop of American exceptionalism, looks towards such a mass revival. A time when the nation as one will return to the Lord, following a prolonged stretch of moral disintegration and the erosion of Christian values. As a consequence, his mission largely pivots around the conversion of non-believers, for his faith insists that the more souls are saved, the happier the Lord will be and the more blessings he will bestow upon the American people. However, should revival prove elusive, should enough souls remain unsaved, should enough people continue to turn their back on Christ, then the consequences will be dire indeed. For the Lord will wash his hands of the whole bloody lot, and whatever happens to happen, can happen. If Footmen Tire You basically presents an extended sermon delivered by Perkle, portions of which he had already recorded for an album released in 1969, and in which he projects his vision of a near-future America in which revival has not come to pass and in which a communist takeover is well underway. The idea being that these dreadful prophecies will inspire those yet adrift in the world to heed his advice and turn with the full of their hearts to Jesus. So where a thief in the night was basically saying, uh, if you don't get saved, well, you're the one that's going to suffer the consequences. A footman tire you is more or less saying, if you don't get saved, not only will you suffer, but the rest of us are fucked as well. This explains, at least in part, the extreme lengths that the film goes to to shock and shake up its audience. Reverend Perkle, are the pictures we are about to see true facts or are they figments of your imagination? I can document every statement that I make in this film and all of the dramatized reenactments are taken from actual events that have happened in Russia, Korea, China and Cuba where the communists have already taken over. The only difference is that we're using Americans to emphasize that the same thing can and will happen here if they take over. The title is derived from Jeremiah, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, which in the King James Bible reads as follows. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustedst, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? So the film represents uh, Perkle's extended ruminations on this particular passage, uh, ruminations which more or less 
boil down to the following. The various cultural phenomena and social shifts and developments of the preceding decades have been characterized by the emergence of what Perkle describes as a series of footmen. People and things and fashions designed to wrench America, and especially America's youth, away from the bosom of the Lord, and consequently to open the door to a full-on red invasion. So the horses, then, are these communist hordes due to descend upon America at any moment, if revival doesn't come to pass. Uh, the path having been paved by everything from miniskirts to nightclubs to drive-in movie theatres. The latter is of particular interest, uh, given the background of director and screenwriter Ron Ormond. Ormond, uh, born Vittorio Denaro, was an interesting character, to say the least. Uh, one of these people who seemed to be fit to waft effortlessly through any number of milieus, uh, passing from this scene to that to the other, always retaining a wee bit of the last as they move on to the next. Early in his career, he was heavily involved with vaudeville. Uh, he was actually a magician. But more than that, he was a showman. He knew how to wow an audience with whatever happened to be at his disposal. He knew how to get people into theatres. He knew how to get people talking. All of those things stood him in good stead when he made the move to motion picture production. Initially, he busied himself with the production of westerns, albeit very cheap, relatively short westerns, often designed to prop up the somewhat more prestigious pictures with which they would sometimes be packaged and presented for exhibition. He also made a number of films with prominent or upcoming country music artists, uh, the most famous likely being 40 Acre Feud, which starred George Jones and Skeeter Davis, among others. Eventually, he moved into outright exploitation, uh, producing with his wife, a fellow vaudeville veteran June Carr, with whom he had managed the Three Stooges at a time, uh, a whole raft of salacious pictures in the line of Please Don't Touch Me, or The Monster and the Stripper, or Untamed Mistress, films tailor-made for drive-in audiences, and which often proposed to pull back the curtain on a particular social ill. So, the scourge of adultery, let's say, or sexual dysfunction, or whatever. These were exposés mounted primarily as an excuse to fill the screen with scenes depicting the things the film ostensibly sets out to condemn. Please don't touch me pulls no punches, calls a spade a spade, and carefully considers subtle sexual problems that takes you back to the old days of Mesmer, who hypnotized his women into compassion. You'll see the ancient Egyptian sleep temples, where high priests treated the problem of frigidity in women by use of the loved one of Isis. Ormond is often compared to Ed Wood, and it's not difficult to see why that might be. Although, personally, I feel that the most interesting of Ed Wood's films are, on the whole, far more interesting than the most interesting of Ormond's. 
But like Edward, uh, he worked quickly and he made a bunch of really cheap films capitalizing on whatever happened to be getting people into cinemas or drive-ins at the time. Whether that be cowboys or aliens or country singers or spider beasts or bestiality or wayward women or whatever. Also, like Ed Wood, uh, interestingly enough, he ended up developing a pretty close relationship with Bella Lugosi, who would go on to become the godfather of Ormond's first son. But what Ormond was also doing was carrying on the work of people like exploitation pioneer Kroger Bab, who also applied the tactics of the old-time medicine show snake oil salesman to promote films like, say, 1945's notorious Mom and Dad, uh, probably the most famous, certainly the most successful, of the great number of so-called sex hygiene pictures that appeared around that time all of which approached their subject through similarly sensationalistic lenses, most of which legitimized this approach to some degree by enlisting the services of health professionals or professed professionals, most of which incorporated censor-baiting documentary footage, most of which indulged in a lot of disingenuous hand-wringing, and most of which landed their producers in hot water whilst making a handful of people a hell of a lot of money in the process. A lot of Ron Orman's films were very much in that tradition. But then, in the middle of all of this, uh, he also, when the notion took him, headed off with another old vaudeville buddy, the magician and hypnotist Ormond McGill, from whom he derived his stage name, and the pair of them spent a fair old while traveling here and there and hither and on, especially throughout Asia, collaborating on a series of books dealing with curious folk customs and traditions and religious beliefs and what have you not. A lost civilization of women without men, where violence knows no bounds, where strange men are captured as mates, and forbidden women perform the weird rituals of savage love. All of these dimensions of Ormond's character, uh, the showman, the sort of sideshow barker, the magician, the exploitation huckster, the aficionado of all things mysterious and mystical, collided in quite spectacular fashion when, in 1966, on his way uh, to a screening of his most recent feature, the girl from Tobacco Row, the plane he was in with his wife and son crashed in a field not far from Nashville. He survived, but a similar incident uh, during a return flight from the Bahamas not long after heralded the emergence of a changed man. Sort of. He converted to Christianity, at any rate. Uh, that is definitely something that he did. And he very quickly forged a relationship with Estes Perkle, uh, the pair forming an unlikely alliance which resulted in a trilogy of extraordinarily bizarre and gruesome pictures which married evangelistic revivalist doctrine and anti-communist paranoia with all of the trappings of the sleaziest, most deliriously tasteless exploitation films imaginable. Rather than turning his back 
on the grindhouse, Ormond just sort of redecorated the grindhouse, planting the Ten Commandments here, and an organ over there, and maybe a battered old Bible next to screen. The three absolutely fevered, but deadly serious, uh, films he made with Perkle are among the most outrageously sadistic and gratuitously nasty pictures that I have ever seen. And these were things that people were watching in church. The communist treatment of Christian women is horrible to imagine. For example, they like to strip a woman naked, tie her head to one jeep and her legs to another jeep, and pull her limb from limb. Basically, uh, if Footman Tire You has three main threads that intertwine as the thing rattles on. Uh, there's Perkle's sermon, delivered directly to camera, but within the context of a rather sedate church service. There's the dramatization of the dire events that Perkle predicts. And there's the spiritual journey of a young woman, Judy who here serves a function similar to that served by Patty in A Thief in the Night. Uh, she has shown up to church on this particular day to sort of keep up appearances. But really, she can't wait to be back with the boyfriend who dropped her off, that she can carry on boozing and bonking and battering about the world with no more cares in her head than the daisies. For much of the first half of the film, she just kind of sits there, uh, rolling her eyes and sighing, but as things proceed, as Perkle's patter becomes more and more blood-soaked and alarming, the many terrors that he conjures come to impress upon her more and more, and we begin to discern a change going on within her. Many people in America today are walking down the journeys of this life, unmindful of the present turbulence or the dangers that lie ahead of them. It seems as if they will not be alerted until communism marches up behind them and runs them down. When communism comes, these people will make a run for their lives and attempt to escape. They'll put up a good fight, but it'll be too late. They'll not be able to defend themselves from these terrible, ruthless killers who will not stop until they have trampled them down beneath their powerful heels. So clearly there are many parallels between this film and A Thief in the Night. Both films utilize the fictional news broadcast as shorthand for authority and authenticity. Both films imagine a terrifying dystopian future, awaiting those who have failed to turn to Christ in time. Both films seem to talk a lot about Christ without actually saying anything about him at all. If you didn't know who Jesus was before you watched these films, well, you wouldn't come out the other side very much the wiser. Both films are also very self-reflexive. Uh, Ormond's film engaging with, uh, perhaps even seeking atonement for, the great bit of cultural poisoning he was getting up to prior to his conversion. It demonizes the nightclubs, the drive-in theaters, the very notion of sex education, all things that Ormond was up to his elbows in for much of his career. Furthermore, both films are preoccupied with the notion of being left behind. Although, again, in this case, it's the entire nation that Perkle fears will be left behind. 
Finally, as I said, uh, each film ultimately revolves around the battle for a young woman's soul. And in that respect, there is a clear line connecting A Thief in the Night and If Footmen Tire You to recent evangelical propaganda pictures like the truly reprehensible Unplanned, which is based on an almost certainly bogus memoir and which is all about a young woman being led astray by a bunch of feminist rhetoric that results in her taking up a post in an abortion clinic. We see some strange young people in our land today. Mothers and daddies, what do you want for your young people? No doubt every one of you listening to me today would say, Preacher, more than anything else, I want my son or daughter saved by the grace of God. If that takes place, it'll be in spite of a bunch of footmen that are running loose against your sons and daughters. Perkle is extremely distracted uh, all throughout, if footmen tire you, with thoughts pertaining to shagging. Shagging and the various worldly currents and pop cultural artifacts and trends that promote and encourage shagging. The kinds of clothes that people wear that will likely result in them getting up to some shagging at some points. The kinds of places that they go to. There is shagging going on in those places and you best believe that Perkle knows all about it. They're adding so many more things to make our children go astray. Today, we have the drive-in theater. Have you considered what goes on down there? It's nothing more than a spawning house for sex. What's shown on the screen is nothing but raw sex and violence. And there's no supervision. Another question. I'd like to know what's your attitude toward dancing. You say, preacher, times have changed. I don't see anything wrong with dancing today. Dancing is just as wrong as it's always been. You say, what's wrong with it? It's the front door to adultery. The thing that started on the dance floor is expected to be finished in a parked car or a motel somewhere. On the face of it, uh, I suppose there's maybe not a whole lot about the foregoing that is all that remarkable in and of itself. Uh, Ormond's film is just one of a multitude of pictures produced by Christians in the midst of the culture wars that erupted in the wake of World War II and which saw religion battling secularism, Christianity battling atheistic communism, tradition pitted against progression, East against West, United States against United Nations, so on and so forth. If Footmen Tire You can be read as just one of many shots uh, fired in the course of those battles. Something we can think about and talk about alongside, uh, say, the virulent anti-feminist evangelizing of author Beverly LaHaye, wife of Tim LaHaye, of Left Behind fame, or the erecting of Ten Commandments tablets outside of the nation's courthouses, uh, a move orchestrated by Cecil B. DeMille and Paramount Pictures as part of the promotional push for DeMille's 1956 film about the Ten Commandments, or any number of similarly pious, commie-phobic productions like Red Infiltration thriller The Sickle or the Cross by Frank Strayer, who we will definitely be coming back to in future episodes, or the crazed Red Planet Mars by Harry Horner, 
in which a Soviet-funded former Nazi, in league with no less a fellow than Lucifer himself, establishes contact with a Martian civilization equipped with nuclear weapons uh, in the hopes of bringing about chaos and destruction in the West. The plan goes to pot when it is discovered that the Martians are in fact Christians, uh, a revelation that brings about mass revival on Earth and another revolution in Russia, this time resulting in the overthrow of the communist government by a populace driven to revolt by the Holy Spirit. What sets If Footmen Tire You apart is that all of its sermonizing and all of its reactionary rhetoric and all of its finger-wagging and remonstrating is in service to something that is pretty unique uh, among films of this type. That arsenal of horrific, ultra-violent uh, dramatizations and reconstructions of events which haven't happened, but either will happen or may as well have happened. There were times when I was watching If Footmen Tire You, when I was reminded of the infamous Driver's Ed films uh, shown in American high schools throughout the 1950s and 1960s, in which footage of mangled bodies being pulled in bits and pieces uh, from the ruined wrecks of automobiles featured prominently and from which Ormond would draw direct inspiration when depicting the aftermath of a car crash in his later Perkle-free Christploitation shocker, The Grim Reaper. The bodies on display in Footmen are the bodies of actors. Uh, these people haven't really been shot in the mouth or stabbed in the stomach. But the grainy sorts of uh, close-ups of children strewn about the roads or piled up on the pavements uh, with blood all over their faces oftentimes have the same sort of visceral charge, even if the stuff stacked up around these horrific tableaux is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, these are images with an undeniable power, especially given how many of them prioritize the sight of dead children. There are more shots of children blasted to bits in A Footman Tire You than in any film I can think of this side of that masterpiece of pedophobic terror, 1976's Who Can Kill a Child. That's the only thing I can think of that comes close. At every available opportunity, a child is slaughtered. Uh, the most memorable sequence in this line is probably the one in which, uh, having just seen his parents killed for professing their love for Christ, a young boy refuses to stamp on a picture of Jesus and is decapitated for his troubles. Uh, the head then nonchalantly tossed to one side to bounce away off down a sort of grassy kind of knoll to holy wherever. Another child has his eardrums pierced with sticks so that he cannot ever again enjoy hearing the words of the Gospels. We are treated to the sight of him being held in place by his aggressor's bloodied hands as his own blood streams from his ears and he throws up all over himself again and again. Another really unpleasant image 
privileges a dead child laying on an altar, with its head resting on a bloodied Bible. Who are these children? They are Christian boys and girls who refuse to give up their faith in Christ. Had they yielded to the demands to become atheistic communists, they could have lived. Yet because they chose to remain steadfast to Jesus Christ, they had to be annihilated to keep them from contaminating the minds of other boys and girls. I mean, this is properly messed up stuff. Um, but it's so unutterably bizarre that you're just left sort of open-mouthed in a kind of bemused stupor for the duration, in the same way that you might be if you were presented with the notoriously gruesome and now very collectible work of Christian fundamentalist cartoonist Jack Chick, whose deranged doodles Ormond's film frequently recalls. Uh, Chick's pocket-sized tracts, uh, distributed worldwide, peaked in popularity around about the time that Footman went into production, and consisted of comic strips delighting in the many varied and ingenious tortures awaiting sinners, especially Catholics and communists and adulterers and homosexuals, far side of their final wretched utterances on earth. If Footmen Tire You takes exactly the same sort of glee in depicting, for example, men deprived of water being held on the ground as the communists shovel salt into their mouths, or as they burst into folks' homes with bottles of vodka in their hands and the lady of the house on their minds. The great irony here is the uncanny extent to which both Perkle's anti-communist catastrophizing and Ormond's film overall recall the atheistic propaganda materials uh, produced and distributed throughout the Soviet Union just over a decade earlier, uh, under the leadership of Nikita Khrushchev. For despite the widespread anti-ecclesiastical propagandizing and purging that went on under both Lenin and Stalin, Khrushchev believed that by the early 1950s, religion had regained way too much of a footing within the USSR, uh, thanks in part to the vital role that the church had played during the Second World War. Desperate to banish the backwards and superstitious religious culture that was, among other things, as Andrew Stone writes, supposedly preventing the credulous rural population from becoming part of modern socialist society, Khrushchev, by 1958, had ramped up efforts to eradicate religion once and for all, filling the press with articles warning about how, to quote Molly Worthen, um, religious piety led to drunkenness, missing work, and even violent crime, and anecdotes about religious zealots who would murder loved ones who refused to obey religious teachings. The sheer density of sick-headed scenarios uh, packed into a footman's hire use meager 50-odd minute running time is actually, in its own perverse sort of way, genuinely impressive. 
virtually every sadistic act imaginable uh, is given an airing at one point or another. Uh, if you have ever had an itch to see a man's children being forced to hold him in the air with a rope before dropping him onto the prongs of a pitchfork sticking up out of the earth, then this is very much the film for you. It's like Men Behind the Sun, but for Baptists. Anyway, unlike A Thief in the Nights, uh, if footmen tire you what will horses do, does at least allow the woman at its center, Judy, terrified by these damnable predictions, a chance to redeem herself. Uh, and the film concludes with Estes Perkle bidding her rise up to let Jesus thump through her bones, just as her dying mother wished. And she does. I was wrong, Lord. Please listen to me. Please take me back. Forgive me of my sins. God, please. Ormond and Perkle made two more films together uh, before deciding, for reasons that have never really been fully explained, uh, to go their separate ways. Those films were the hugely ambitious The Burning Hell, which depicted, well, The Burning Hell, and The Believer's Heaven, which depicted The Believer's Heaven. Ormond's final project, uh, which he never saw to completion, and which was finished by his son, Tim Ormond, with whom he also wrote the screenplay, was a picture entitled The Second Coming, which set out to dazzle and electrify with depictions of all sorts of spectacular, apocalyptic goings-on. From the rising of the saints, from the bowels of the earth, to Christ himself descending on horseback from the heights of the firmament. But that is where we will leave things for now. I'm Aaron McMullen, and this has been Mondo Christ Almighty. Uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast and you're using sites that allow you to follow or subscribe, uh, please do so. If you'd like to leave a wee review or give it a wee star rating or something like this, uh, that would be lovely and would be really appreciated also. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MondoChrist. You can email me at MondoChristAlmighty at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also have a nosy about the website, uh, mondochristalmighty.com, where I publish in tandem with the release of each episode uh, a series of bibliographies, filmographies, links to relevant articles or other web resources, uh, all that kind of stuff. Next time, uh, we are leaving 1971 and 1972 right back where we found them. For 1973 will be the only game in town as we stride off along the gospel road in the company of the man in black himself. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Raise and go.